Hello there everybody, this is Chandradasa from the Buddhist Centre podcast here in Mexico City with the cows, as you can hear in the background on a beautiful warm afternoon at Chintamani Retreat Centre a couple of hours from Mexico City and I'm delighted to say that I have one of our guests here today, Bodhikamala who is with her close friend, my close friend, Sangadara, who lives in the UK, but is from here. Bodhi Kamala is still here. And they have been friends since they were nine years old. Yeah. Is that right? So we thought we'd have a conversation about them being forever friends. This already quite long life they've shared together. And how they found their way to the Dharma and to Triratna. And how they ended up sitting in this lovely garden in the shade (laughs) in late October. So Bodhi Kamala was part of this amazing group of women who were ordained. It was our first live stream from Mexico on the Buddha Center. I didn't actually connect that it was you for a while because I remember seeing Sangadara posting things about you coming to get ordained. So you two have been friends for how many years now? Did I ask? Well, would that be 22 years? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, a long time. But you're both still pretty young, if you don't mind me saying so. You're kind of still qualified technically as young people. So We are. 22 years is quite an old friendship for young people to have. Quite unusual, in a way. Yeah, what, 30 and 31? Yeah. This might sound like an odd question, but it seems that even at an early age, you two had something in common, a connection to leading a spiritual life now. Yeah, well, when we met, actually, it was in a summer camp. I just moved from Mexico City to Toluca, and it was a summer camp run by Bodhikamala's family. It was an arts camp, and we did a play. We did musicals, which that's another thing that has remained in our friendship, our interest in musicals. <laughs> but a part of musicals, I suppose our families were quite, for the lack of better words, I would say they were bohemian and a bit new agey. At least I remember meditating as well since I was a kid. I remember leading through a meditation to a friend when I was six or five. And then after that camp, that formed into a proper school. We studied there together. In that primary school, we, we had meditations to, to channel energy, a bit like Reiki, and we would align our chakras and read auras in order Ooh. to heal people. And also, we were given stuff to read from, well, quite good novels. I remember Hermann Hesse's Siddhartha, mm. age of 10. So the idea of other religions were quite familiar to us, I suppose. Yeah, I think that it set an idea of us feeling interested in the myths. I remember both of us being very attracted to the idea of magic and many archetypes that are related to it, like the wise man and the wizard, witchcraft, <laughs> all these kind of things. So in a way, I think that we started to feel very receptive towards the idea of going forth and finding something bigger and more important in life mm. for us. So we would play about these kind of things. We would literally play. I remember particularly there was a time when we were 10 and I was like 9 and we were in his house. We decided that we had invented a color. I have no idea how (laughs) did that come to our mind, but we decided that we had invented a color. It was related to magic and we were just running all around saying the name of this new color, which was a refrigerator brand. That was the name (laughs) because we couldn't figure out a better. I don't know. I mean, I became much more skeptical over the years, but back then I remembered seeing all these colors and auras of people and having all these very very strong experience and he had that too it was a very nice time in my life because I remember that I was much more open to the mystery of life yeah, yeah. 
And this sounds like it was sort of encouraged in the culture you were in at school and with your families. They were, were comfortable with you being slightly unusual. Weird. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that too. <laughs> yeah, they were fine. They yeah. were fine? Yeah. <laughs> They're weird in their own way. <laughs> and your, your other friends, did they think you were a bit weird? Were you just surrounded by people who were unusual like you? Or were you surrounded by kids who were Catholic and who were part of sort of more normal 10-year-old stuff like soccer? And... Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's my experience. People were much more normal than myself. Maybe that's one of the reasons why we became friends. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I remember kids playing football and doing all sorts of things. Instead of being Gandalf. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's another thing, actually. Harry Potter, we're still big Harry Potter fans. Yeah, <laughs> we, we are still. about magic. And Harry Potter was current when you were like nine and ten yeah? years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So grew up with Harry Potter as well. Mm. What's your favourite Harry Potter book? Mine has to be the sixth. Half-Blood Prince? Yeah, it just, you learn a lot about the story of the characters. <laughs> That's a it really is, dark it book, is. isn't it? It is. I really appreciate things when they are a little darker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it connects me to a more human nature, mm. in a way. Uh-huh. No, I'm not sure. I don't think I have yeah. a favourite. No. No, I think mine's Prisoner of Azkaban. I was about to say that. First one where you really thought, oh, this isn't just wizards on broomsticks and stuff. It's like mm. something mm. else. Yeah, mm. yeah. The father stuff, the, the archetypes that you were talking about. And, oh. and musicals? What was the, <laughs> well, was the history? You can, well, sing, you can sing it if you like. This is like, embarrassing. When we were together back in high school, high school musical became a big thing. So we were quite big on high school musical. Wow. Well, we knew the songs and we would yeah. like to sing it. I love singing. I'm very shy. I don't like singing in public, but I do love singing very much. And I'm singing all the time almost. So, in a way, it was like, oh, this is new lyrics That's to exciting. learn. And It's interesting, though, something like musicals, isn't it, when you're young? Because like, it's not like cool, necessarily, is it? So no. You clearly weren't very interested in being cool. You just had this connection to it. <laughs> Maybe we were, but we just didn't do it very well. <laughs> no, I think he was. I mean, was we are cool? very, very different yeah, persons. Yeah, what's, so what's the difference? I am much more introverted. Hmm. And I used to be very, very socially weird. <laughs> like, I couldn't I couldn't understand hmm. how to deal with people. And most of my time was, I just wanted to read and to be in my own thing. I didn't even know how to connect to people. It's been something that I've been trying to work on. And I still experiment a lot of social anxiety when I'm in a place where I don't know what to do it's like <laughs> I just don't want to but he's completely opposite he's extroverted and he was very popular so people were he was friendly and people would be friend with him and I was like all right and I would just go away and do other things especially in high school that was the time when I was feeling more like I just wanted to learn things because that's what I really enjoy doing it's learning stuff so I wanted to have the time to learn my things <laughs> But he was very different, so mm. he used to have all sorts of friends. Some of them which I found really strange, like, because they were so normal. They seemed to me so normal, I couldn't understand what was happening. So how do you move together from that very hippie, liberal, playful childhood to a much more focused path as Buddhists? Did you move in mm. parallel towards that or did you have very separate routes to that? Well, how I remember it was... So yeah, we were together in primary school and then in secondary school we went separate ways and we didn't really see each other that much. Enough. But then back in high school we happened to be in the same classroom. My whole secondary school was just about that being popular and I rebelled. But I was getting a bit bored of that and tired of that. And yeah, I was reading Harry Potter and not many people that I knew just didn't even read. And I knew that Buddy Kamala reads. And 
and also I think I remember there was a couple of auras from the teachers that caught my attention so I wanted to talk to Buddy Camel about it so we would be in the back of the classroom I would just ask her what do you think about that purple stream coming out of that person's head kind of thing and from there we just reestablished our friendship mostly around we had a few interests but one of them was kind of philosophy particularly in relation to what truth was Hmm. particularly related with the end of the world if we were going to survive the end of the world as we could would probably live in our lifetime what oh. truth would we bring rather than bringing lots of right. books how can we bring and embody that truth so we had this big project of just do like a comparative religions and then compare notes I remember she was going to research on Wicca, oh, yeah. Wicca stuff. Yeah, I and, uh, did. Yeah, yeah, she did. Yeah, yeah. As well as how to survive different apocalyptic scenarios. She was very good at research. This is driven by the apocalypse. You're you're going to try and find the truth, and you're going to carry it with you. Adventures at the end of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Seed the next generation of beings that survive. Because we didn't know what would happen. Whether if we would have to fight for survival, or aliens would come and pick up the best amongst us so we wanted to be on the top of the wisest i love this episode so far (laughs) auras new colors aliens and the apocalypse and harry potter and what do you remember about this focus on the apocalypse was it frightening i mean were you scared in my experience it was both i was feeling very tired of the world around me i didn't really believe in the common values social cultural values that were around me. As I just said, I didn't find it easy to have friends. And it was partly because I couldn't find anything to relate with people, stuff like that. And in a way, I was very cynical. I was like, oh, just, you know, this society is a mess. It would it, it would just be better if society ended and we could have a fresh start where, where we wouldn't value economical things as much mm. or we wouldn't be killing our planet. So I had a very strong mm. social worry and I had a very strong seed of activism. But at the same time, because of my personality, I, I wasn't very skillful at doing that, <laughs> doing anything with it. So what happened is that I... I ended up being tired of the world as it was. Mm. But at the same time, of course, I was very afraid because to me, it seemed very logical. It was like, of course, this is going to happen. I don't know what everyone else is seeing, mm. but what I see is <laughs> we're finishing uh, the resources. The planet is going to end at some point. So I wanted to be part of those who wouldn't die <laughs> in the process. <laughs> yeah, and I wanted to actually do something valuable with it. Huh. You're, what, late teenagers by this point? Yeah, 15 and 16, 16, yeah. Yeah, that's it. And the world might end. Yeah. And you've dedicated yourselves to truth and friendship, presumably. You're already firm friends. How does that move towards Buddhism? I don't know how conscious it was. We were quite tired of contemporary society values and expectations. And and I think as far as we could see, like people could also sense that, or at least intuitively, but it was still run by habit in just the current structures. So I think it was this idea of just waking up to truth, like break out of the spell. The idea of enlightenment rang some truth. What really brought me to Buddhism, I suppose, was existential suffering, almost kind of unsatisfactoriness of just existence. It wasn't really physical pain or psychological pain. It was just the sense that there was something more to be seen than a broader experience than the one I could see. So anyway, I saw on my research on Buddhism and a couple of books, I read a quote that said, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. And I think that gave me the whole glimpse of what Buddhist meditation and thought was about and how primary mind is and how there is an option to wake up. 
And the previous year I went to a Catholic retreat, which I hated. But I thought oh, I want to go on a Buddhist retreat to be amongst Buddhists, doing Buddhism in a Buddhist place so I could find the truth. By the way, back then we didn't call it the truth, we used to call it cookie because we didn't know if it was a thing or a person or a thought or an experience. So we called it a cookie. So we called ourselves the cookie searchers. It was better than the cookie monster, so it's just yeah. <laughs> That's what then we later became. <laughs> We're now cookie monsters. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, on a winter break after that first term, in high school, I asked my dad to take me to the Buddhist Center and I went to a series of talks entitled Glimpses of Reality, which was just exactly kind of what I wanted. Mm. But that same winter, Bodhikamala had its own encounter with the movement. Well, I was actually more attracted on that point around the same time uh, with philosophy, generally speaking, and more about Western philosophy. So I was particularly interested in the idea of Plato's cave and the world being some sort of delusion, which is something that I can connect perfectly with Buddhism. So I remember that there was a retreat in which my grandmother wanted to go, but not because of Buddhism, but because there was going to be yoga practice. She was like, I don't want to go alone. I was like, okay, let's go. But I have to admit that I was not going with my best attitude and I was not going very receptively. I was just like, oh, let's see what they say. Because I, at that point I was just like, oh, religion, and <laughs> that's not going to work. That's the problem that, that happens when you read a lot of philosophy. <laughs> I came to this retreat and I remember people feeling very odd <laughs> when they were around me because I was 15. So yeah, he was like, oh, you're so young all the time. He was like, what's happening? <laughs> and the first thing we did when coming to Cuernavaca, where the retreat was going to happen, is that we had a very big hamburger because we said, oh, we're not going to be eating meat for a week. What are we going to do? And then it took me by surprise, but the theme of the retreat was ethics. And I found it so, so moving in so many ways. I got completely inspired. For, I, I don't remember being inspired when I was a teenager up to that point. They were talking about animals and they were, and it really moved me. So I was like, I'm never going to eat meat again, up to this point, no matter what. And I really didn't. It really moved me in a very, very deep way. And I was like, this seems to be, first of all, logical. This was something I was really looking for, a logical approach. So not just like blind faith, but something that I could engage reason and knowledge and at the same time it seemed to be very honest my experience of the Buddhist that I met there was that they were being very very honest and transparent and that communicated more to me than any word so they were talking about their difficulties as well and their flaws and I was like wow that's new <laughs> that's refreshing they are not trying to sell me a truth they are just being themselves. So that was a very good invitation for me. Oh. The funny thing is that I didn't know he was going to the Buddhist center. He knew that I was going to the retreat just a couple of days before I went. And then we discovered that we were in Turatna, both of us, in different ways, in a different city. <laughs> we discovered Turatna almost at the same time. Amazing. When you became conscious that you were both in this particular community, did that have an effect on your friendship? immediately because there's quite a strong discourse in mm. Jaratna about friendship as a path and as a practice mm. and I suppose it sounds like you'd been unconsciously practicing friendship for quite a long time without necessarily thinking about it in that way. Presumably it was inspiring to have a friend and to have common interests like musicals and Harry Potter and the rest yeah. of it but when you find this kind of higher inspiration in, in the Dharma did that affect your friendship? 
I mean, probably we're just making it conscious, actually. <laughs> well, like, we are friends. Yeah, that we are friends. Like, <laughs> I wonder if it was just part also of play and mutual interest as well. Also kind of secret, I suppose. I mean, she was naturally more introvert and private. But then we had this exploration, which was against the mainstream in a way. It was, was kind of mm. contraculture. Our friendship did strengthen and establish, particularly then a few months later, we just started invite other people to what we discovered or where our reflections were, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Did you start going on retreat together? Did you do classes or did you still have quite separate lives in terms of the way you pursued your training? Well, it was a little more difficult for me to yep. go to the Buddhist center because his father lives in Mexico City. It was not so easy for me to just say, Mom, I'm going to Mexico City on my own. I'm 15. I'll see you. Uh, yes. So she wouldn't yes. ever let me do that. So I think that my approach was more theoretical. Mm. It was more like getting the books or reading and practicing on my own. He would go much more often. And eventually there was an uncle of mine who started going to Mexico City every Tuesday. And we started going together with him. That was very helpful. I think we haven't, not even now, we have not been in many retreats together, I think. Mm, yeah. This I space so. must be like the third or fourth <laughs> time we're together mm. in a more retreaty mm. context. Yeah, I'd be more fortunate. I was able to go to the Buddhist center a lot more often, just because I was a guy and my dad would live there, so I had more freedom of movement. Well, you know, I would bring books and we would talk about it on the breaks and we would share our reflections. And, and when your family saw you becoming much more serious about a particular thing, starting to choose something, how did that go over? Were they very encouraging, supportive? Did they understand? Uh, I think <laughs> in my case, well... That was a good noise. <laughs> it's just that it's been so confusing for me. It still is. So the first thing that happened was, you're not going to be a vegetarian. No one is going to cook for you. So I learned because I, I had to learn how to cook. And then my mom and my grandmother, who I, I was living with them, they were open and receptive, very silly. They were like, I have no idea what you're doing, but do whatever you want. My mom and my grandmother, they both became vegetarian very soon. So that was fine. They never really wanted to understand what was happening, but they were respecting it and they were supportive. Still, I think they just believed that it was like, like a face. It was face. a face. Although they became vegetarian, like that sounds like a little more than just supportive. <laughs> it's like they, you say, it sounds like you must have hmm. carried some of the truth with you and they, they must have seen something. I hope so. Because they know so. how to cook meat, right? They could cook meat if they like. They did, yeah, of yeah. course. I think, honestly, I think that they just found it easier to go and eat what I was eating. And, and then my grandmother retired two or three years after I became a vegetarian. And she started to cook for us, which was very nice. And she didn't want to separate meals. So she just started cooking vegetarian and then she liked it. My mom, she does it for ethical reasons. So I think my grandmother is more about being healthy. But my mom now, she's got a nice relationship with animals, which is really nice and I really appreciate. So in my other family, it's been a, a little trickier. In the beginning, I think they were very supportive. But what they don't really accept is the fact that after the ordination, we mm. change our names. Mm. So they don't use it. And strongly, they told me, I'm never going to call you that way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, they have supported me. I have to say that, and quite a lot. But at the same time, there's this thing in which my impression is that they don't agree that I belong to an institution. So they don't like the institutional level of Turatna. 
that's why they don't really accept things like ordination or so that's a little challenging for me because I mean it's it's the most important thing in my life I must yeah. say and that's the way I just live my whole life now my whole life is <laughs> the order and the way it sort of moves so in a way I feel that there's a lot of me that I cannot share anymore with them yeah mm. it's painful for families mm. sometimes isn't it when yeah suddenly you turn up with a new name and a different perspective and what about your two families? How did that, how did that work? <laughs> I mean, initially they were just very supportive. Again, even though I was free, a bit free, my dad was who took me to the Buddhist center because I asked him to. So he stayed with me the first couple of talks. And particularly my dad, he thought it was just a phase. It's only until recently, in the last couple of years, it's a thunder. It's my dad. It's thunder. You said dad. Amazing. Son of Zeus. I thought there was something a bit interesting about you. Yeah. This is what it is. You're the son of Zeus. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, they thought it would be just a phase. My mum's been very supportive. I mean, then later we started a meditation group. And my mum would come quite often to the meditation group. I think she probably still might turn up <laughs> sometimes. I hope so. Yeah, she's quite open. My dad's family was. I'd be less understanding, luckily not antagonistic, but just, just less understanding. Like when I got ordained and I would come back, there was a bit of a resistance and maybe a, not a lack of understanding of calling me Sangadara. But then, I, well, I said more to my sisters, that just made me feel a bit more alienated because I felt like what Bodhikama said. I felt like if they didn't want to relate with me, have how I am and what I'm interested in, therefore it was very limited what I can bring in relationship to them, particularly for things that are so big in my life. But since then, they've been doing a lot more effort. And actually, my mum, when I told her my older name, she said, like, oh, that's so fitting, that's so beautiful. If I would have known, I would have called you like that from birth. Oh, I love you, mum. <laughs> you know, I think, I think it was one of the best responses I've heard. It doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Parents, that's indeed that's you remarkable. Know. And she calls me my, by my old name every now and then, like just like out of habit. It's not out of resistance or sometimes when she sends me audio messages on WhatsApp, she in the middle of sentences she might say my old name. But when she says good hello and goodbye, she just kind of almost make, makes a point of like, oh, goodbye, Sangadara. I love you, Sangadara. More than, more than saying my own name. Oh, it's so nice. <laughs> yeah, I've, met, I've met your sister and your dad. And both of them, at least nowadays, they seem very uh, yeah, supportive. Right. It was good to meet your dad the other day with three order members, the three of us together. He looked proud of you. So you both find your way into the order. Have you had much of a chance to notice an effect on this next level, as it were, where you're not just intentional friends as practitioners? In a way, it goes right back to your childhood, like a community of truth. Mm. Does that impact for you as friends when you think about each other? Mm. The fact that you have this in common, this mm. bond, the Samaya bond. When you get ordained, you receive a sadhana practice. And the sadhana practice is usually focused on a particular archetypal figure. And the Tibetan tradition, which is partly where our sadhanas come from, they speak of the Samaya bond between the disciple and the, the figure that they're meditating on, trying to take on those qualities. So in a way that that figure's qualities permeate your whole life, and that your mm. whole life becomes your sadhana, and your whole life becomes an expression of what it is you're trying to do, you're, you're being faithful to the bond. Does that capture yeah. something of your friendship with each other? I think a Samaya is a good way of explaining it. A couple of trips ago, I came and I led a, the wedding ceremony of Bodhikamala and Nauru Chiramati. He just got ordained this year and they're married. And I do feel like a lot of layers on our friendship and history, I suppose. And recently I edited a video about Sangharashita and his disciples and they're talking about that kind of friendship that will continue for lifetimes in a way. So it has that timeless 
existence almost. And I do think, because even though now I live in England and I just know that we talk a lot, but when we meet, this is like time hasn't really passed in a way. Even though there, there might not communication, there's definitely still a connection. There's still a link and there's still a relationship. Yeah, we don't talk. I mean, I'm very bad at, at doing that, at communicating through cell phones. Devices. Yeah. It's not that I don't want to, it's just that I'm not very good with it. You know, he's all with the gifts and <laughs> a language I don't speak. But yeah, it's really interesting because when I think about him, I usually think about him as my brother. Like my, uh, not exactly older brother, but like that's the kind of relationship I, I feel I have with him. So I think that it's like when you have a family and he's going to live in a different continent, it's just that you love him very much and it doesn't matter that he's not around. And when we meet, really, it's like it's like we had just met yesterday. Mm. So um, yeah, so there's confidence and there's... I definitely feel that I can be myself. That's mm. something I really appreciate. I mean, within the order, I feel that, but um, like he understands a little bit of my awkwardness <laughs> and he's fine with it. So <laughs> that makes me feel more relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel that it changed a little bit after the ordination. So when you get ordained, my personal feeling is that you make this unspoken commitment like everyone becomes your brother or sister mm -hmm. in a very deep way that's yeah. how I feel whenever I meet another member I can feel that strongly it was like a different level of being brother sister like a deeper mm -hmm. way and yeah I was just thinking about uh, just sitting there and seeing people and I was thinking well if we don't die first <laughs> or earlier we're going to be in the order for so long and we're going to see each other grow old even if we're not living in the same country, each time we see each other, we feels like growing all, growing all together. But not just in our age, but like in our experience of the order mm. and in our Dharma service too. Mm -hmm. So that seems remarkable to me. <laughs> I mean, something that I'm really inspired about. Reminds me a little bit of, there's a meditation practice that we sometimes do in our community called the Mudita Bhavna. You, we practice rejoicing in the good fortune of others and there's an extra stage in this meditation called the stage of the boon companion it's a nice mm. victorian translation of something and it's just that thing of you know having that reliable connection to someone who you just think about them and they're there mm. whether you're in the same country or not in the same country and listening to you too it sort of really reminds me of that I mean, maybe next time i do the practice i'll think about you too <laughs> that kind of easy just yeah somebody you can walk in after a year and it's just it just picks up where it goes. Mm, yeah. So maybe we could end by just, you know, we doing what that meditation does, which is rejoicing in merits. What, what is the quality you most appreciate about the other person? Mm. Well, it's a few things, like inquisitive mind and just our capacity to study and in a way like penetrate text, just like us in terms of understanding and digging for their core in a way. And also discipline as well. She can be quite disciplined when she wants to. From the beginning, she was very clear to the ethical practice from one day to another. You know, she just became vegetarian. For me, it took me another six months or something, and or more actually, probably almost like a year before I actually went veggie. Or just say, oh, I'm going to read this at this time, you know, for this long. You're building a routine and just following up. And also in quite a mature, holistic way. It's not just, you know, so you might read something entertaining as well as, as philosophy and as well as training. At the moment, she's doing a course on classical music. 
and then another one on introduction to rock and roll, just to expand her knowledge. It's a thoroughness and a kind of this, yeah. an ability to just go into things and really take them in and yeah. let yourself be changed by them. And, yeah. One third last thing is, there's a confidence and freedom to be herself. I think she's always very like, well, you know, I don't care, you know. I don't understand that, I don't sign up with that, and I don't care. <laughs> well, sometimes I'd be like, yeah, I wouldn't feel as free as she was and as confident as she was to or to be herself, I suppose. It's funny because I'm going to rejoice in him in something that I'm not, which is what he just did. <laughs> so yeah, I have always admired the way he can be so spontaneous. He can just have this idea and then like, all right, <laughs> and go and do whatever, which would take me so long to just think and organize and no he's like oh yeah let's do that and something that i thought since we were very very little kids <laughs> it was that it seemed to me that he was happy mm. which was a, a concept that i couldn't really understand when i was mm. little it, it seemed to me that he had the ability of really enjoy the moment and the things that were there and if not just changing them so in talking about in this discipline part i would be like no oh, because i have to do this it's very important because i said i was going to and he was like but i don't want to do that and <laughs> you know <laughs> that's a different kind of freedom <laughs> <laughs> it's it is but in a way i have imagined that if we were elements i would definitely be fire and he would be air you know, so there's a lot of freedom and expansiveness in air oh. as an element. And I, I often think about him as air, which is something mm. really strange, but that's what happens to me. Or when I'm thinking about him, the image of just air comes to mind, which is like this ability of being expansive. I think he's, he's got a very natural way to love people, like so easily. And so naturally he just can appreciate the good qualities in others and embrace them and love the way they are. And that's something that seems to me very expansive like the air. I do think that you have a lot of freedom in your mind. So he doesn't follow structures if they don't make sense to his, uh, his experience. And that's something I find very truthful in himself. So it's like, yeah, and more airy, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you said the other day about being the, relating to The Last Airbender, which is a anime about the elements. But it comes to mind when you describe him. <laughs> yeah, he, he's very alike in personality and in qualities as well. I do find it very, very positive. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that if you have such freedom, it's easier for you to be happy, generally speaking, like to enjoy what's going on, to say, you know what, I don't feel like it at the moment and then enjoy the moment. He does remind me a lot, this principle of how precious human life is. So I think he embodies that a lot more than many people I know. Mm. Well, that's a very nice way to end the podcast, <laughs> how precious your friendship is. Yes. Well, thanks for sharing it today. It's very sweet to sit and listen to people just who are so at ease with each other and have it such a long history of care. Mm. It comes across very obviously when you're together. Thanks very much to Bodhi Kamala and to Sangadara for talking us through their forever friends history. Yeah, thank you, Chandradasa. <laughs> and we will see you soon. Until next time. <laughs>